Hi, I'm Brandon. And I'm Megan. And we're on a journey to improve our marriage, our family, our faith, our fitness, well, just about everything. Along the way, we might accidentally give a tiny bit of solid advice, so join us as we chat each week. Welcome Welcome to to the the Fools in Love Love Podcast. Podcast. Hi guys, today we're really excited to welcome Mike Rincon to the podcast. Mike is a TEFL certified English teacher and career coach who helps non-native English speaking professionals achieve fluency of English and improve their overall communication skills as part of their career development plan. Thanks for being on the show today, Mike. Thanks for having me, guys. Hey, Mike, before we get started, can you just tell us a little bit more about what you do and just tell us your story and how you got into the field and how you got to where you are today? Sure. So I teach English as a second language coaching. For those who are not familiar with coaching, basically I teach the soft skills and tactics for career development. Um, The more obvious stuff might be like how to write a resume, how to prepare for an interview. I think the more important elements of coaching include things like dealing with anxiety, dealing with difficult coworkers, as well as how to deliver a better presentation and collaborating different team members. Yeah. So a little bit about my background. So I just fell into this by accident, right? So uh, I actually graduated in 20, 2010 with a communications degree with the idea that I was going to be a writer. I was going to be a blogger or a journalist. I don't know what I was going to do, but I ended up getting accounting jobs just by, through my network, just by chance. And for a few years, I ended up in dead-end jobs until I discovered a guy named Ramit Seti from I Will Teach You to Be Rich. And I used his material on that blog to learn how to communicate better in the workplace so I could start making more money. Um, eventually, I got to the point where I was able to get viable positions. I make six figures as an analytic consultant. But what happened was I realized I don't really want to do this. Uh, I don't like the lifestyle I have as a consultant. I don't like working 40 hours a week and over time. I don't like not having to take vacations. So uh, I discovered teaching English as a way to be able to work less hours and to be able to travel remote. So that's how I transitioned to it. And while I was learning how to teach English, I found a lot of my students didn't just have English problems. They had career development problems that I had. They didn't know how to get jobs. They didn't know how to deal with coworkers. They didn't know how to ask for a raise. So that's how come I kind of got into this kind of interesting blend of teaching English and career coaching because I found my students need both. Yeah, that's definitely an interesting blend. I love it. It's so cool that you're doing both sets and really solving people's issues for them. That's really cool. But as a career Thank coach... You. You've surely seen clients come to you with all sorts of challenges, and I bet some of them even start in the interviewing stage, like you had said, you know, like they have all kinds of problems communicating and even getting rolling. So what's your advice for people struggling to do well in an interview? And if the interview is for a job they might not feel they actually have enough experience for, what would you recommend then? Right. So for the first part of that question about um, what to do if you're struggling with interviews, struggling to do well, well, there's two elements to that, in my opinion. The first one, I think it's kind of obvious, but it's anxiety, right? This surfaces in different ways for different people, though. But the more common examples might be like talking too fast or not making eye contact or not smiling. See, what happens when we're anxious, we tend to try really hard to appease other people. Right? And I think for those of us who are introverts, what I've seen consistently with myself and with other students is, it's almost to, to try and hide by not bothering anyone. That's, that's the strategy that introverts do. They don't want to be social, right? So they do a lot of things that to try and avoid attention. But the consequence of that is that it appears that they're not interested in the role. They don't, they don't show interest in the, the interviewer. They don't show interest in the job. 
And that causes employers to think they don't want the job. So you could have really good answers, but you know, if you're acting as if you're not interested because of the anxiety, it's going to cause problems. It makes you look incongruent. The second part of that is that you could have bad answers in general, right? What I mean by that is that you could have, you could be confident, you could have, you could feel like you're capable of getting the job, whatever, but you could be giving the wrong answers. So they might be asking a question like, uh, tell me about your experience, and you could have really good experience and you have really good credentials and all that, but if it's not related to the job, then it's useless, right? As an example, like I have some experience managing vendors, but if I'm interviewing for a job and they want someone to build a dashboard, like it might be really cool that I manage vendors, but if I talk about that, it's not going to help because they're going to think, oh, Mike's not a good fit for this role. We need someone to build a dashboard and not someone to manage vendors. So that's the other problem that I've seen where students usually have challenges is that their answers are not directly related to the job. They kind of just repeat the same answers over and over and over, and it's not specific to the role. Now, for the other part of that question about what about if they don't feel like they actually have enough experience for the job? So here's my thing. What I've learned is that that's a lot of it's in your head, right? So what happened is like you may look at the job and say, I don't have enough experience, but you may not actually know that until you get the interview or a job offer. And what I've seen happen is the opposite is also true. Sometimes you get a job offer, and you think, yeah, I can handle the job. I have the experience. And then you get the job and things change. You might get something that was not expected. Like you're told the job requires one skill and then all of a sudden you get the job and they say we need to do all these other extra things that were not on the job description. So that's something to be aware of. The second thing is that the experience itself is, I would question, like, can you get it, right? So, for example, like one thing I've seen one thing I struggled with personally was some of the jobs I wanted required technical skills, like how to use spreadsheets, how to use databases, how to do Visual Basic and some other code. And I was a communications major. We never learned that in college. So I had to go find that on my own. Right? The alternative was you try and get on the job, but it's probably not going to happen with the jobs I had. So what I found is that for a lot of the experience you need, you can just go get it for free on YouTube or on Google searches. So my question to you is if you have a job you're looking for, but you don't have the experience for the job, you know, is there a way that you get that experience? The final part is, like, is there a way that you can take previous experience and is it similar to what you've done to what you're looking to do now, right? So, for example, some jobs I've had, they require things like managing employees. Now, if you've never been a manager, then you can't, you can't say you've been a manager. But maybe you've done other things. Maybe you've trained in new hires. Maybe you've led initiatives. Maybe you've given advice. Maybe you've reported to upper management. And maybe you led... Uh, projects are there, are there things that you've done that are similar in nature that could go towards that? So that could help you if you're struggling with jobs you don't have the experience for. Maybe you have something that's closely aligned within that realm or that sphere. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, and I mean, I can I can certainly respect that. I mean, I think we all know that if we've ever, if any of us out there, uh, I know we probably all have gone through interviews you know you're going to have a bit of anxiety and you're going to have you know a bit of hesitance when you're going into that because it's something brand new like you don't know what they're going to ask just by the sheer nature of it they're not giving you the interview questions ahead of time so you don't necessarily right. know what they're going to ask if you're prepared because you can read a job description but like you said most jobs have that little line at the bottom <laughs> that it's like and all other required tasks, you know, like, and it could be, it could be anything. So do you find that 
doing a little bit of research with the company, maybe figuring out a little bit more about what they do and having a little background on that helps your clients as they kind of look forward into into going into an interview with a little bit more confidence? I think so. Like one thing I've learned, so there's two elements to anxiety, but there's the belief and then there's the actual, the knowledge part of it. So I went to this one seminar and the guy said, this is about public speaking. He said, if you believe, 73% of your fear is gone. If you get the facts, 25% of your fear is gone. And that's what what I've seen as well, right? If you can do all the research you want and that'll help you, it'll give you some confidence. But if you just don't believe in yourself, if you just don't um, believe that you can do it, if you just don't find a way to be okay with getting rejected, with the fear of failure, if you're not okay with losing things out, you're going to have a lot of anxiety, even if you do the research, even if you do the work and that you spend the time to find more about it. But yes, you should definitely, um, not just for the anxiety point of view, but just for the performance, like to do better in an interview, going back to my one of the previous answers was, it's how you answer the question in relation to the job, right? You want to answer as closely aligned to the job as you can. So a quick example would be like, is a job a contract job or is a full-time job? And one interview I had, I was told it was contract to hire. And I got the interview and I had to adjust on the fly because one thing he said was like, we're not sure this is going to become a contract or full-time role. It may just be a contract role. And that completely changed the game. But I think it's important either way to do the research so that you have an idea of what kind of questions you're going to get and what kind of answers they're looking for and what kind of things they're looking for. Are they looking for more Excel experience? Are they looking for more SQL? Are they looking for team skills? Are they looking for more management skills? What are the critical things that they think are important? Right. Really good advice there. And you've mentioned a little bit about being maybe a little more introverted. And so Brandon and I are on the opposite ends of the spectrum when it comes to being introverted and extroverted. As an introvert, the workplace is not the easiest place for me to navigate, and I know I'm not alone. Are there ways for introverts to integrate more easily into the workplace culture, especially at a new job? My answer is this. What I've found personally is that the easiest way by far is to focus on one-on-one conversations. Right. So like I, I think like most of us in first, like if you put us in a room, you put us in a big group, we're gonna just shut down, we're gonna get nervous, we're gonna get overwhelmed. Uh, but what I found that an easier way to manage that is slowly get to know each person one on one, slowly, right? In the elevator, in the hallway, at their break room, and just engage in small talk that way. And that will what I found helps when you have those big events. So then you all of a sudden have all these people you already know. And you can engage with them a little bit more comfortably because you have things you, you have spent time talking with them, so you can be comfortable with them. Aside from that, the other thing I would say is that it's okay to be introverted and not actually engage in the workplace culture, right? So I've had every year I've had a new job essentially. If I go back to my LinkedIn profile, I've had a job almost every year, and I found that it's not required to necessarily integrate in the workplace culture, right? It's perfectly fine to to not really engage. You can still do very well if you don't want to be social. So I would just keep that in mind as well. Like it's not necessarily required, but if you really want to, you want to get the bonus points, you want to do better in the workplace and get along with others, I would focus mostly on one-on-one conversation. Yeah, that's a great tip. That's a great tip. Because I feel like, especially when you're starting a new job, even as an introvert, you still want to feel like you want people to feel like that you're a team player. And so like you want to be, yeah. you know, making those relationships, building those relationships, certainly with, you know, the people you're working closely with, with your managers, with your boss. I mean, you want to make sure that you're 
putting yourself out there. And that kind of leads me to my next question. Me and Megan actually run our own business. And I wonder if there's a way that as a manager or a boss that we can make it easier for an introvert or an extrovert when they're starting a new job with our company to help them to find their place? That's a very good question. So this is what I'll tell you. The What I've seen is, again, just like I said before, with the introverts working one-on-one, what I've seen in my experience, the most important thing for the managers is to build that trust and rapport one-on-one with employees, right? And this is, I don't remember where I found this statistic, but there was a statistic, something that showed that your relationship with your boss is almost as important as your relationship with your spouse. So for your employees, uh, I, I think if, as a manager, the best way to do that is to start having those one-on-ones and digging deep and finding out how things are going. It takes time to build the trust. It takes time for employees to to become comfortable sharing their true thoughts and feelings with the manager. Right? Because I know you, if you're, I don't know about you guys, but I've had full-time jobs where I've shared things with people. I've shared things with my manager, and I got laid off. Right, So I've learned i got to be very careful what I say. So it takes time to build that. So as a manager, I would strongly suggest the one-on-one, both introverts and extroverts, to find out what they're like, what they're interested in, how they respond. The second part of that is their team meetings are also important. And what I think is important about team meetings is to observe how people interact with each other. So you want to see, like, are there clicks? Are there people getting along? How are they doing it? So even though I'm introverted, like, I'm still, you'll still, you will see that I'm pretty civil with my colleagues, right? And I think that's really important, going back to the team player thing, right? If someone engages me, says, hi, how are you? Um, even though I'm introverted, I would still expect to be, uh, have a like small talk and say, I'm good, thank you. How are you, right? Something I would expect to different places, but I think as a manager, it's important to observe the room and see how people work with each other. And you can bring that back into the one-on-ones and make those observations and say, you know, I noticed that, you know, you guys may not be getting along. Is everything okay? Or do you may have noticed this, this, and this. I think it's really important to identify rifts in uh, relationships between colleagues as soon as you can, because what I've seen happen is nothing destroys the team faster than this idea of us versus them. And I, I'm guilty of this, where I had one team where I was pretty mature and I didn't like my colleagues, so I wasn't civil with them. And so what happened was I wasn't mean, but I wasn't necessarily social. And they felt that. And one team meeting we had, they brought it up at the boss. And they said, you know, it just feels like it's us versus them. Like it feels like we're not part of your team. Because I had been there longer. I was senior, so I had a good rapport with my boss. And it was an accident, but it, it just causes more work and it causes damage. And you want to nip that in the bud. You want to address those kind of workplace issues as soon as you can and find out what would it take to solve it. You know, it's causing it. Was there a misunderstanding? Is it just, it just, it's not a good fit. So it's good to find that out quickly and just observe in the team meetings. Right. Yeah. I mean, no matter what line of work you do, it seems to me that everywhere the workplace culture matters so much. And, you know, you, you can't have these big rifts like you were saying and expect things to run smoothly, no matter, no matter the field you're going to have to have everyone right. getting along to actually meet the common goal of running the company. Right, exactly. And I wanted to talk a little bit more about networking because we've kind of kind of briefly touched on that, but I know that probably even extroverts can sometimes struggle with networking, right? Yeah. Yeah, so how can we all be more prepared and confident when it comes to network events specifically? 
Like, what if we feel like we're run out of things to say and how can we tackle just having a successful networking experience? So let me tell you that my experience, I had to go through quite a few seminars and boot, as I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with this, but for men, uh, for a long time ago, I'm not sure if they still have them, but they used to have these dating boot camps, the PUA boot camps, and men would go to bars and they would approach girls. And I've gone through quite a few of those. And so I can give you some insight about how it works. It's very similar to a networking event. You, how you approach somebody in a bar is very similar to how you approach somebody at a party or at a, a workplace seminar. The, the biggest thing by far in order to prepare for these events is if you can do some research on it, you can find out more about who's going to be there. That'll help you a lot. But Keith Ferrari talks about this in his book, Never Eat Alone. If there are people that you really want to meet and you know they're going to be there, it would, it would help a lot if you just go on LinkedIn and just research a little bit about them and you find out more about their background, just take five, 10 minutes and talk about things that they have talked about in their LinkedIn posts or their articles, whatever they're finding interesting. That could help you a lot. It shows that you did research and that you were interested in meeting them and they'll feel flattered. For all other events where you're not going to have that opportunity, where you're not going to be able to really find out who's going to be there. So what, I, there, what I've learned is that there really isn't like a one true solution for running out of things to say, right? I've gone through multiple books, I've gone through multiple programs and seminars, and everyone has their own opinion. There are certain things that are consistent, like asking open-ended questions and being interested in the other person, but there are some inconsistencies I've seen. For example, I was going through one class and the guy suggests that you should mirror their body language. And I was in another class where the guy says, no, you should just be you and they will naturally want to mirror your body language, right? So it's very inconsistent. So in my opinion, the best way to really to be prepared for those kind of networking events and just to, is the first thing I would say is just let go of whatever outcomes you're trying to get. So, for example, the idea of going to a networking event, like I have to like meet this many people, or I have to give out this many business cards. I think that's what kills people when it comes to social events. So they have this goal, they have outcome dependence, and they're like, I must achieve a certain metric. Um, that's going to put a lot of pressure on you. That's going to cause a lot of anxiety because you're going to have some vague goal that may or may not be accomplished. Right. So to become more confident, I would just. Just go there knowing you're going to do the best you can. You're going to approach people. You're going to start talking to people. People may approach you. You're going to give it your all, and you're going to see what happens. Maybe something happens. Maybe something doesn't. When it comes to running out of things to say, um, I haven't really found a perfect solution. I, I can give you a few different ideas that I've found, um, which I'll have a list right now, which I think will help you. Like the one thing I've seen consistently across the board is having some, some sort of question toolbox, so having some sort of repertoire of questions you can ask to keep the conversation going when things kind of die out. So for example, what you might ask someone is like, what kind of projects you're working on or what's your favorite thing about the city? Very basic, like small talk, you know, how do you know the host? Very small things that are not very intrusive. Another strategy I've seen, I got this from a dating coach called Jessica J. She calls it the PRS plus hey, and that stands for personal relevant statement plus how about you? And basically what that is, is you talk about the environment and how it relates to you. Like, oh, uh, I'm really excited to be here. It's my first time at a seminar. How about you? How are you enjoying this? Right? Very simple stuff. One last piece of advice I can give for keeping the conversation going. I've seen this consistently across the board, but the best way I've seen it described is from Lil Monendez. She has a book called 92 Tips and Tricks. She calls this tip called cherry picking. And what happens in a conversation, when someone says something, you want to look at the words and phrases they use and see, is there a way to 
what does that remind me of? What is that? What, is that, what does that make me think about? And is that something they seem interested in? So, for example, if they seem to be talking about food, you could ask them questions as it relates to food, like, you know, is, you know, is this your favorite food? Is this, uh, have you ever been, or let's say the food is like a Chinese food, like, have you ever been outside America, have you been to Asia? Things like that. The final point I want to make, just to reiterate about the like, you know, outcome dependence, is like conversations are two-way street. And what I've seen personally with me and what I've seen with other people, it, it's completely, a lot of it's luck. Right. There are times when people approach me and I will become the most social person you ever met. And there are times when people approach me and I am very quiet and I have nothing to say. And it, it could be you. It could be the way you approach me or it could be just it could just be my mood. There is a lot of factors involved. It's random. So it's important to keep that in mind. Like Let go of the pressure. Just do the best you can. Again, try some of the tactics I just mentioned. But just remember, just you're never going to have like this perfect streak where you go out and every time you approach somebody, it's like the best thing ever and you guys become best friends. Right, right. Yeah, I, I absolutely love the analogy you're using when it comes to dating versus like a networking event because it, I never really thought about it that way, but they really do kind of go hand in hand because what I've always found, even as an extrovert at like networking events, like Meg said, it, it can be a little challenging because you still got to you know, break the ice and have those icebreakers with someone and you got to just walk up to a person. But I've always helped, what's always helped me and, and I guess in dating too would be finding those common interests. So like when you approach someone, like you said, asking simple open-ended questions to find that common interest and find out you know, kind of where they're coming from and who they are. And then from there, it kind of snowballs into other topics that you can talk about. But I, I love that connection between the two. And then just also, you said something about going into the networking event with certain goals. And and I've done that as well. Like I'll go in and I'll say, you know, I want to make this many connections. I want to hand out this many business cards. But what I've actually found is exactly what you said, that if I go in with the goal of just making a couple good connections of people that I can touch base with after the fact that can lead me closer to my goal or get me closer what I want information about, I've had way more success just going in, just trying to make a couple good connections. Like you said, not lifelong friends, but you know, business connections that can be helpful. And so I love that. I love, I love everything you said there. Thank you. Yeah. So I want to kind of turn the page here and I want to talk a little bit about what everyone really, really wants to know about. And that's if you have any tips for how you should go into asking for a raise or negotiating a salary. Okay, very good. So I have two different opinions for both of them, right? So the first one, uh, for, and this goes to both asking for a raise or negotiating a salary. And uh, first, I got to give, again, give credit to Renee Sadie for this, because this is where I got the idea from him. He calls this concept, I think he called it front loading the work, right? So when you're negotiating a salary, that conversation should be had way before it's time to get the offer. You should be very clear that, you know, your expectations are, You've been well compensated. I don't remember exact words used, but you should you you're used to being well compensated, and you uh, expect to be well compensated in this position as well. So you're open to discussing it. You're trying to be empathetic to the employer. Same thing with asking for a raise. Like what I thought was interesting with him was his suggestion was that you want to go in months in advance before it's time for your performance review, and you want to find out what would it take for me. What are the key metrics you are looking for in order for me to receive a 10 to 20 percent raise? Right? And the reason you get these data now is so that you find out what's important to them. And then during the three to six months, 
you over-deliver, you accomplish those goals. And so when it's time for your performance review, you not only know what you can talk about, you also have a portfolio that you can bring with you and saying, hey, you know, we talked about this a few months ago. Um, what I just said from your conversation was that if I complete these three items, that we can talk about a potential salary. And so I came to this performance review today showing that I over-delivered on these three items. This is what I've done to do it. And what's going to happen is that your boss is going to, and I've seen this happen, I did it with my boss and she loved it. You give her stuff that helps her or hit what my boss with her. You help your boss to go back for you. And now your, your boss is on your side. Instead of like, I have to ask to raise my boss. My, now you have more evidence that your boss can go to HR and say, this is all the reasons we should give Mike a raise. Right? I think that's very helpful. And I, I've tried that. What I personally do is I actually don't really negotiate per se, right? So whenever someone calls me and says, you know, we have a potential job offer or a potential job for you, I simply say, well, my rate is this to this, right? Instead of trying to negotiate the salary and say, yeah, right, this is, I simply put it out there saying that this is what I expect to make. This is what I'm looking to earn. And what I've been finding in my field in financial services, that, that works a lot better because most of the time they already have like a budget. So it doesn't really make sense to try and negotiate because they already have an hourly rate in mind. And what it also does is that it prevents what I would say like resistance or changes in the end. Because what happens is they come back, you go through the, the interviews, how many interviews it is, and you get a job offer and the rate is significantly lower than you anticipated. And then you have this problem where it's like, well, I can't take the job because it's too low. So I, what I've done is that whenever I have a phone call or phone interview, I make sure to find out what the rate is that they're looking to do. And I tell them that my rate is this. And they'll tell me, you know, it's actually going to be 40. I say, oh, I'm sorry, that's too. thank you. And that's it. Um, sometimes they say, no, we can work with that budget and then we can move on. See, the other thing is when it comes for asking for a raise or trying to get a promotion, um, like I said before, I did it the way Ramit said he had advice, which is while doing the work in advance to do it, asking for it to what it takes, and I found that to be effective. What I do now is I simply just do the work automatically. I just over-deliver, right? And so what happened was in one interview I had, um, not only did I, because I over-delivered on that interview, not only did I get the job offer, but I got a job offer that was higher than what was originally quoted because he wanted me that badly, right? And I've seen this repeatedly for the past few years, right? Instead of me saying, so I'm a contract employee, and so one of the big things that we look for in contract is can we get converted to full-time? And just right now on my current job, my boss posted me a couple of weeks ago saying, would you be interested hypothetically in a full-time job? I didn't ask for it. He gave it to me. He asked me if I'd be interested, right? And I told him, and I was very honest with that. I have to be, uh, like I said before, I told him, well, right now my rate is $50 an hour. So for me to consider a full-time role, I would need to be, I'm looking for roles at 55. And we had a very honest conversation about that. And he said, we could talk about that. It's, it's within their own possibility. I think that's a lot more powerful for them to come to you than it is for you to like ask. I also think you should ask. There's no harm in asking, but in my opinion, it's better just to over-deliver from the get-go and you see how they respond. They will come to you. If they don't, then you just move on. Right. Yeah, I love the over-deliver advice. I think everyone should be striving to be the absolute best at their jobs. But one thing I want to talk about is criticism. So obviously, no one likes to be criticized, and there's this thing in our in our vernacular that's constructive criticism. But really, I mean, whether it's constructive or not, we're going to be called out at work. How are we able to best deal with criticism in the workplace? 
Okay, so I guess there's two sides to this question because it could be one, you're getting feedback, you're getting criticism from your boss, or it could be you're the boss giving feedback to the employee. So if it's coming from coworkers or boss, I just take the, the mindset of, is it true, right? So I, I don't take things at face value because sometimes what happens is people give you feedback and they, they believe it's true, but they believe it's true based on the information they have. In general, if you're getting feedback, you and it's, let's say it's constructive feedback and it's meant to help you, in my opinion, it's in your best interest to listen to what they have to say and take note of it and see if there's a pattern. Like, is this something that's happening repeatedly? You're constantly getting the same issue, or is it more like one-off random issues that just seems to be one-time thing? And again, the second thing is to dig deeper and say, is this true? Is this something that I really am having problems with? So, for example, when I first started working, I was people would say, I'm not a team player. Right? And I, at first, I just kind of shrugged it off saying, why would I need to be social? I saw this happening repeatedly over the course of a few years. I kept seeing this with different jobs, with different coworkers and different managers, and I saw the pattern was the pattern is me. The pattern is that I'm not being a team player according to multiple people. I should consider what what am I doing wrong and how do I fix this? Right. And what I found was the solution was you know, just being a little bit more social, being a little bit more polite. So you can imagine like I wasn't just like Introverted. I was almost antisocial. I wouldn't say hello. I wouldn't say goodbye. I wouldn't engage in small talk. Um, so I learned that I had to adapt my behavior to keep working. Was this a be polite small talk? Well, we're closing in our time here, Mike. I, I did have one more question I wanted to throw to you because I know that I, I'm not really sure what you found in your years of coaching, but from what we found as managers, one of the most important things that we found for employees is their willingness to learn new things and to step in and to do what must be done. And even that's even when it's not in their job description. So what do you think are the biggest indicators for workplace success? And how are you able to help your clients become successful in those areas? All right. So I think the biggest indicator for workplace success is adaptability by far. Right. I think that covers pretty much everything we just talked about throughout this uh, session was that things can change very quickly and we have to be able to work accordingly. And th- those who want to continue to grow. So going back to my student, I, she was upset because somebody told her she wasn't very social. And we talked about this. And I said, do you really want to be a project manager? Because if you want to be a project manager, like you're going to have to be more social, right? It's not enough just to learn English, right? You, you expect it. Like learning English is like level one. That's great. It's good that you know English. Level two and three is like, you're going to learn how to get along with others. You're going to have to lead teams. You're going to have to motivate and inspire and hold people accountable. Um, so I think that's the big thing is the ability to go along and change plans as things change, as the need arises. I think that's the biggest indicator by far mm-hmm. for someone who's going to be successful in their career, somebody who's going to continue growing and taking on higher level positions than someone who's not is their willingness and their ability to change and be adaptable to the environment and to the situation. Absolutely. Well, Mike, since we're almost to the end of our time today, for anyone listening who may want to learn more about what you do, where can they find you? Oh, thank you. Yes, I have a website. It's called it's uh, michaelsbusinessenglish.com. Or you can find me on Instagram at michaelsbusinessenglish. You could also find me on LinkedIn. My name is on LinkedIn is Michael Alexander Rinfon. So you want to look me on LinkedIn, you can connect that way too. Oh, thank you, Mike, for all the great tips. We enjoyed having you on. Uh, we know there's a lot of value here for our audience, and we appreciate you, and we wish you all the best of luck. Okay, thanks, guys. Thanks for having me, Brandon and Megan. 
Hey, thanks for tuning in to another show of Fools in Love Podcast. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to our podcast or follow us over on Facebook at Fools in Love Podcast or hit us up on Instagram. Megan's at This Average Mom and I'm at Brandon Giggling. We'd love to hear from you over there. Talk soon.